The art is a source of unspeakable power, and it has to be researched. And it will be, I assure you, Dr. Brody, Dr. Jones. We have top men working on it right now. Who? Top men. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. We are kicking off our sure-to-be-action-packed third season with one of our all-time favorites, a film that our favorite hometown critic Roger Ebert once called, quote, a movie of glorious imagination and breakneck speed that grabs you in the first shot, hurdles you through a series of incredible adventures, and deposits you back in reality two hours later, breathless, dizzy, wrung out, and with a silly grin on your face. <laughs> that film is, of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark, later marketed as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the 1981 classic adventure film directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Lawrence Kasdan based on a story by George Lucas and Phil Kaufman. It stars Harrison Ford, who was born to play the role of Dr. Henry Walton Indiana Jones Jr., the brilliant, handsome, and incredibly competent archaeologist. On the 40th birthday of this beloved film, Gizmodo wrote about some of its best moments. The hat, the whip, the ability to take a punch. It was 40 years ago this week that audiences fell in love with Indiana Jones' best attributes in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Released June 12th, 1981, this brainchild of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas cast a spell on audiences to the tune of over $200 million, three sequels and counting, and countless unforgettable cultural landmarks. Unquote. Indeed, Raiders of the Lost Ark won five Oscars, seven Saturn Awards, and a BAFTA, and is now considered one of the greatest films of all time. In fact, the U.S. Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry in 1999. It is truly a foundational film of the modern era, and it helps cement Spielberg and Lucas as luminaries. Not to mention Harrison Ford and his perfect embodiment of Indiana Jones, the character. Since his first appearance in Raiders, Indiana Jones has become one of the most famous characters in cinema. In 2003, the American Film Institute ranked him the second greatest film hero of all time, after Gregory Peck's Atticus Finch from the 1962 To Kill a Mockingbird, but ahead of Sean Connery's James Bond at the number three slot. There's actually kind of a funny connection between Indy and James Bond. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were hanging out right after Star Wars had come out, and Spielberg told Lucas that he wanted to make a James Bond movie, and George was like, well, I've got something better, and told him about this, this story he had cooked up about an archaeologist hunting down supernatural artifacts. He talked in an interview about how his other big idea that he had for a movie, uh, a little film called Star Wars, you may have heard of it, <laughs> was the more marketable of the two big ideas he had. So he pursued that first, and after that was a mega smash hit that changed movies forever, he and Spielberg started the ball rolling on what Spielberg called, quote, a James Bond film without the hardware. Kind of a neat way to uh, look at it. Spielberg also changed the character's last name from Smith to Jones. Indiana Smith, for whatever reason, just doesn't have that <laughs> ring to it. They're both very common names, right? But for some reason, Jones just rolls off the tongue. And just like that, one of the most iconic characters in all of fiction was born. As you mentioned, the branding for this movie was eventually changed to add Indy's name to the title to match the rest of the movies in the series. If you go look this up on Amazon Video right now, it's called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's such an iconic character, it's hard to imagine 
now seeing this movie before an Indiana Jones movie was even a thing, right? When this was just a, a fun standalone adventure movie without a character's name in the title. But we definitely did. We saw it back then. I saw it right when it came out because this was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. As we mentioned in our episode about Clash of the Titans, another one of our favorite movies, these two movies premiered on the same day in 1981. And instead of, you know, the one with the with the flying magic horse and the cute little robot owl, my mom <laughs> thought that the movie with the melting Nazis <laughs> and uh, tarantulas and corpses and skeletons was, you know, the better pick for a, a six-year-old's first movie. That checks out. Those tarantulas honestly messed me up. I had a legit fear of spiders for like years when I was a kid after seeing this. Fun fact, the tarantulas that we see in the movie are actually native to Mexico, not, uh, I believe it's Peru, right, where the, the intro to this movie takes place. Wow. Anyway, uh, back to Indy himself. It's almost impossible to imagine anyone else in this role, right? Harrison Ford is just masterful. He's serious, intense, and as cool as can be. Roger Ebert also said... Back in 2000, Harrison Ford is the embodiment of Indiana Jones, dry, fearless, and as indestructible as a cartoon coyote. What he proved in the Star Wars movies and went on to prove again and again is that he can supply the strong, sturdy center for action nonsense. In a scene where everything is happening at once, he knows that nothing unnecessary need be happening on his face or in his voice or to his character. He is the fulcrum, not the lever. Nice. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's selling Harrison Ford's performance a little short. But uh, I definitely get what he's saying. As hard as it is to imagine anyone else in this role, Harrison Ford was not the first choice for the part. Well, he wasn't George Lucas's first choice anyway. Steven Spielberg wanted Harrison Ford, but George Lucas was hesitant because he'd cast him in so many things. He'd, he'd cast him in American Graffiti, in Star Wars, and Empire Strikes Back. According to Wikipedia, George Lucas didn't want Harrison Ford to be thought of as his, you know, Bobby De Niro because my, who was, why did I do that voice? Who was that supposed to be? Was that supposed to be Robert De Niro? <laughs> I, I bought it. Um, you know, because uh, Martin Scorsese always cast De Niro in his movies. Uh, the role was famously originally offered to Tom Selleck, but Tom Selleck couldn't do it because he was busy with Magnum P.I. And the rest is history. Apparently, Harrison Ford was officially cast less than a month before shooting on the movie started. And you can't talk about indie without getting into his trademark look. Right, a big part of which is all of his signature gear, his leather jacket, his fedora, his whip, his bag, most of which uh, I feel like you had. (laughs) Well, we both love gear and collectibles, so this is right in our sweet spot. And my great aunt, rest her soul, got me an official Indiana Jones fedora. I still have it to this day. It's not the actual one he wore or anything like that. It's just a prop replica that was sold widely. But interestingly, it's pretty small. It fit me as a kid, but not anymore. It is really cool though and kind of a neat thing to have in the closet remember the great hat comeback of the mid to late 2000s <laughs> when guys were wearing hats we, we wore hats we wore our little uh like newsy caps you know and everybody every guy wearing a hat with a brim was calling it a fedora and we knew better we knew that you know a fedora is a big brimmed hat like indiana jones wears and they're wearing their little you know dumb little trilby hats they're called <laughs> um not fedoras. No offense to anyone out there who enjoys a good trilby, but uh, yeah, we knew we knew the real deal was the fedora. Although, again, I don't think I could actually pull it off. Yes, I like when we wore our scally caps for a little while. It was it was a fun phase. I also acquired, speaking of gear, an official Indiana Jones full size full tang. My favorite way to refer to this is battle ready machete. 
It has an engraved Indiana Jones autograph on the blade. It's 24 inches and is labeled a Kyber buoy. Not Bowie, like David Bowie, but I guess you're supposed to pronounce it Bowie knife, which are two words that I had not seen together before. The Kyber knife gets its name from its famed use against the British by tribes of the Kyber Pass area. This is a bit of colonialism, to be sure, uh, in a life-imitating art sort of way, I suppose. The technical term for these daggers would probably be Peshkabs. These originated in Persia and are believed to have been created to overcome the male armor worn by mounted and foot soldiers of the day. A Bowie knife is a pattern of fixed blade fighting knife created by Rezin Bowie in the early 19th century for Jim Bowie, who had become famous for his use of a large knife at a duel known as the Sandbar Fight. How's that for a little history? At any rate, there is some very entertaining copy on the box itself that delightfully explains all this. It says, and is presumably written by Indy himself in his voice, quote, Yesterday, during a period of intensive research on ancient medieval weaponry, I began to notice the significant appearance and reappearance of one particular knife style, the Kyber. I became so intrigued with this design that I rushed to the archives to find a particular knife I had acquired in Egypt. It served as a machete on one of my expeditions in the jungles of South America. I remember having chosen this particular one because of its intricately sculpted handle with an eagle's head pommel and snakes on the side guards. The blade also had a slight resemblance to the American Bowie knife. Yes, there it was instant recognition of a weapon that featured all the distinct characteristics of a kyber knife. The unique thickness of the blade spine gives added weight and strength to the knife. In addition, the unusual blade length is somewhere between a fighting knife and a short sword. This was especially helpful in close hand-to-hand combat with the fierce tribesmen who forged this style of blade and lived on a plunder acquired from caravan raids. This had been my most trusted knife through many of my adventures. However, because of the Bowie influence, I must now rethink my previous thoughts. There is sure to be a place in history for what I will now call my Kyber Bowie knife. Could the origins of this ancient knife date back to the age of the Ark of the Covenant? Wow. (laughs) Right? Bizarre. That's a lot of copy, but really fun. And how cool is it? They spent so much time on this. They put a lot of energy and love into that box art. Amazing. It was some guy's job to just write some copy about a knife on a box and he's like this is it this is my moment and he puts on his fedora and he gets into character <laughs> and writes writes fan fiction on the knife box before fan fiction was even a thing amazing i love it okay also this particular blade is from 1989 it was actually released after 84's temple of doom which is where we got to see it in action this is the the blade that he used to cut the rope bridge among other things speaking of collectibles i have to tell the satchel's story Right? We, we got to get into this here. Okay, so one of the signature Indiana Jones items was his satchel or shoulder bag. Uh, the bag is a heavy canvas World War II era Mark 7. And these were actually British gas mask bags. Uh, which they took the original cotton web strap and they replaced it with a leather strap and a metal buckle for the film. From this wonderfully nerdy website called IndieGear.com, check it out, it's a real thing, I swear, I learned that this bag was issued to British troops and police forces during World War II as a precaution against a German gas attack. So, interestingly, this bag didn't actually exist at the time of the first three Indiana Jones movies uh, because they were actually not actually produced until approximately 1941. So he kind of had this bag a little bit before they were actually out in the world. But there do seem to be several different variations of this bag. And the color can vary from mustard yellow, which are usually the Canadian versions, to an olive green and different styles of straps and so on. Of course, well, I became obsessed with this because seeing Indy carry a bag was kind of cool. It sort of masculinized something that could 
you know, sometimes be derogatorily referred to as a purse uh, or a merce, a man purse. But really, when Indy carried it, it must be cool. It's 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 a, it's a satchel, right? It's, it's Indiana Jones had one. So I became obsessed with this. And I actually found at a military surplus store the original one made by Waring and Gilbo Limited. And it's actually stamped W&G Limited, the same maker as the bag used in the Indiana Jones film. So it is honestly really a neat collectible, but it is a terrible bag. It really does <laughs> feel like a repurposed gas mask bag. I mean, you know, it's a government chintzy little canvas thing. So it's not not a good bag, but it is very cool looking. And no doubt it has certainly shaped my views about thinking about bags. It's all about the whip though, right? Oh my goodness. I mean, it's his signature weapon and he uses it for so many other things. He swings over chasms with it. He uses it to disarm people. It's it's really an incredible, incredible device in the plot. Yes. Within minutes of the opening of this movie, we we see the whip at three minutes and 12 seconds into the movie. You understand it's important to him. As we've said a million times on this show, our favorite movies did such an amazing job of establishing and building characters and the worlds that existed around them so efficiently this movie is under two hours long what was the last modern hollywood big budget cgi noise fest you saw that was under two hours it might have been a muppet movie (laughs) thanks to indie and uh, a movie that was on cable all the time when we were kids called zorro the gay blade i have always wanted a bullwhip so badly and you had one you had one hanging over your bar in the basement growing up and the only thing that ever kept me from taking it down and playing with it was the fact that your, your dad would have killed you if anyone touched <laughs> it actually now that i think about it with my terrible death perception i probably would have accidentally killed you trying to do some kind of stupid <laughs> trick whip something out of your mouth or who you, knows you both lost both of your eyes playing <laughs> with this whip how did you do this <laughs> <laughs> this movie it grabs you from the opening shot as Roger Ebert said in that quote I read at the top of the show, like literally from the first moment, the logo even. Uh, a fun fact I just learned while we were doing research for the show, the, the logo, the Paramount logo that's shown at the beginning of the movie is not the Paramount logo from 1981. It's the Paramount logo from back in like the 30s or 40s, which, you know, when this movie takes place and, and the it's kind of a throwback to those old movies from then. So that, right away, that's a, a really neat touch. And the Paramount logo with the mountain fades out and we get a scene of a mountain peak in the South American jungle. Really cool. So it opens up, it's 1936, in the jungle, and we see Indy make his way through an ancient temple to claim an artifact, a gold idol. And, man, I challenge anyone to find another movie that does more with its first 10 minutes than this one does. We get thrills, uh, scares with the spiders and the corpses and whatnot, and almost dialogue-free but totally effective setup of our main character, And a couple of the most iconic moments in movie history. Indy replacing the idol with the bag of sand and the boulder booby trap chase that follows. And it's hard to believe after all of this, everything we've seen so far, it's just a prologue, a setup to the rest of the movie. Yeah, I don't know when this this tradition began, but I'm always fascinated by this opening sequence or action prologue as it's referred to because it really helps get us into the world. It teaches us about the hero. And in that establishing character moment, we finally get to define some of those parameters about the the movie world, right? We understand it. And Raiders of the Lost Ark nails this like no other. When Indy escapes the temple with the idol, we meet his rival, the French archaeologist René Belloc who takes the idol from him. And again, man, this movie builds its world so efficiently that with just a little bit of dialogue, 
we understand perfectly the relationship between these two characters. Dr. Jones, again, we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. And you thought I'd given up. You chose the wrong friends. This time it will cost you. Do bear the Jovitos. Don't know either way I do, Belloc. Yes, too bad. You could warn them. If only you spoke Jovitos. You get the sense that these guys have been going at this for years, with Belloc usually coming out on top, thanks to his unscrupulous methods. And then when Indy escapes Belloc, we get to see the other side of Indy back in America, almost like a secret identity, right? Because there's a very clear distinction between globetrotting, whip-cracking adventurer Indiana Jones that we just saw and Dr. Henry Jones at his day job. Yes, we cut to that classroom, and it's so cool to see the other side of his life. It's very believable and not silly or over the top. This is his Clark Kent to his Superman. Yes, but we do have the female student in the front row with the I love you written on her eyelids, (laughs) which is great and kind of like, I love how it just throws him off his game just a little bit while he's teaching. And then we get these two government agents that come in and tell Indy that the Nazis are looking for the Ark of the Covenant. And it's here that the film's plot starts up in earnest. And these two guys, the government agents, are just perfect. I mean, the G-men in this scene are perfect and perfectly square. They're the best foils to ask those dumb questions for us to get that exposition in a natural way. And I was hooked. At that moment, that's the moment where I'm like, I'm completely in love with this film. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you what mean, do you mean ten the Commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Did you guys ever go to Sunday school? It is talked about a little bit in the movie, but I think this would be a good time to discuss the Ark, the Lost Ark, and what it actually is. The Ark is one of the holiest objects of biblical times, and also one of the most mysterious. A wooden box, roughly four feet by two feet by two and a half feet, perhaps gold-plated and carried on poles inserted into rings. It appears in the Bible variously as the container for the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty-five sixteen, quote, and thou shalt put into the Ark the testimony which I shall give thee, unquote. The sight of God's earthly presence and sometimes as a divine weapon that burns obstacles and enemies. It's kind of complicated, right? So it's referred to in these different ways. Now, other accounts suggest it contains the actual Ten Commandment tablets and a pot of manna. This is the food that God provided to the Israelites when they wandered in the wilderness, another mystery without a clear solution. The Christian epistle to the Hebrews also mentions that it contains a staff that belonged to Aaron, brother of Moses. This staff was said to miraculously grow almonds and flowers in the book of Numbers. So this is a pretty interesting concept. A lot of different miracles are sort of summed up with the Ark and potentially related to it or put in it. Remarkably, the Ark is also credited with bringing down the walls of Jericho. Now, the Bible last places the Ark in Solomon's temple, which the Babylonians destroyed around 580 BC. There's a lot of debate about its current location. Is it in Egypt? Is it in France? Is it in Ethiopia? But it's pretty unclear. Tudor Parfit, a British historian, writer, and adventurer, wrote this book called The Lost Ark of the Covenant. It is a ripping read. He claims that Raiders of the Lost Ark had it totally wrong and that the Ark is actually nowhere near Egypt. In fact, Parfit claims he has traced it to a dusty bottom shelf in a museum in Harare, Zimbabwe. 
in this book, which I highly recommend you read, so prepare for a spoiler alert, he ultimately concludes that a specialized ritual drum that could also be used as a cannon, if you can imagine, called an ngoma, may fit the bill. Do your own research, but this is some pretty compelling stuff. Apparently, it was director Philip Kaufman that came up with the idea of using the Ark as the MacGuffin for this movie. George Lucas originally wanted him to write and direct, and they met to talk about George's idea for a story about this adventuring archaeologist hunting down a religious supernatural relic. And Kaufman said the Ark would be perfect. And since it's a term we throw around here sometimes on the show, a MacGuffin is something, an object, many times, that drives the story and motivates the characters. The term was apparently popularized by Alfred Hitchcock. Think the briefcase in Pulp Fiction or the One Ring in the Lord of the Rings movies, the rug in Big Lebowski. It could even be a person, a character like uh, Private Ryan in Saving Private Ryan. But the Ark is definitely one of the best examples of this, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, in their feature called Know Your MacGuffins, colon, Your Handy Guide to the Indiana Jones Artifacts, (laughs) Empire Online gave it a five out of five on the effectiveness as a MacGuffin scale, saying it's, quote, the perfect movie MacGuffin rooted in incredible folklore, but not hamstrung by it, and full of mystery, wonder, and danger. The Shankara Stones from Temple of Doom only scored a 3 out of 5 on that same scale for being too esoteric as a MacGuffin. Anyway, so the hunt for the Ark begins, and when Indy heads to Nepal to find his old mentor, Abner Ravenwood, an expert on the supposed location of the Ark, we meet the other main character of the story, Marion Ravenwood, played just perfectly by Karen Allen, and this scene in her bar is is one of the greatest scenes in a movie just full of fantastic scenes. It's a masterpiece of cinematography that you get that beautiful map overlay. It's so well done and kind of a throwback to earlier times in cinema. Then we enter Nepal with this incredible scene of Marianne in the drinking contest, which is beautifully done. And then we see larger than life, Indy's shadow on the wall. It's stunning. It's noir. It's iconic. We learn that the two of them were romantically involved 10 years earlier until Indy and Abner had a falling out and Indy took off. Now, they both appear to be somewhere in their 30s at this point in the story, right? Yes. So it doesn't seem strange that they would have been together, that they could have been together 10 years ago. When Marion hits Indy and says, I was a child, and he's like, you knew what you were doing. It just seems like she's saying that she was young and naive and in love. But in doing research for this episode of the show, we came across some notes from a brainstorming session between George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Lawrence Kasdan. And... Yeah, the whole child thing was apparently meant to be a little more literal. Oh, dear. Then it comes off in the finished product. Um, yeah, you can look it up and, and read about it online. But uh, the whole thing is very uh, <laughs> kind of yikesy. Um, let's just say I'm glad they ended up going in the direction that they that they went in. Yeah, I'm just going to choose to interpret that as she was around 18 or 19, kind of fresh out of school, and Indy was maybe 25 or 26, you know, so it was a little bit tenuous at that point. She was inexperienced, and now they're much older and everything's cool. Yes, we will, we will go with that. <laughs> in this scene, we get another important artifact, the headpiece to the Staff of Ra, which is a staff needed to find the Ark's location. And this headpiece gets burned into the hand of the creepy Nazi Gestapo guy. I mean, what a cool conceit because you're trying to figure out how they fig- how they got this, how they figured it out. And then you realize he literally had a copy burned into his flesh. Right. So cool. And because it's, it's just one side of the medallion that ends up being burned into his hand, the Nazis 
end up digging in the wrong place, right? Because they, they don't have the other side of the medallion when they make their own based on the, based on the guy's hand. So cool. Yes. I want to talk about how they did the, the snake scene when Indy and Marion get thrown into the well of souls after finding the, finding it with the staff, they filled the set with 10,000 live snakes. And because neither Karen Allen or her stunt double wanted to actually get in there with the snakes, the snake handler shaved his legs and put on Marion's little party dress uh, and to, to film those scenes. So when you see Marion's legs, you know, with all the snakes, it's uh, it's actually the snake guy for the movie. That guy's a trooper. <laughs> for the shot of Indy facing off at the Cobra, there was a pane of glass in between them. And in the original version of the movie, I mean, you could totally tell there was a, a visible reflection thing going on. But that has since been digitally cleaned up. I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough, but this movie also has one of the best car chases in movie history, I think, and maybe one of the best action sequences in general. It's the big chase after Indy and Marion escape, and Indy chases down the Nazi convoy that's carrying the Ark. The whole scene is amazing, and there's one crazy stunt in particular where Indy goes under the truck that's driving. You know that one? Uh, This truck was specifically designed for that stunt with extra clearance, but there still wasn't enough room underneath for the stuntman to move around down there. So they actually had to dig a long trench and the stunt driver had to drive perfectly over this trench while they did the stunt. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Harrison Ford actually really was dragged behind the truck for some of the scene uh, and apparently bruised up his ribs pretty bad. That's, that's pretty hardcore. One thing I wanted to make sure we talked about was that there are at least two scenes where people actually cheer for Indiana Jones in the film. Yes. It's, Totally hilarious and a little bit out of place, but so much fun. And it's almost like the Greek chorus chiming in to sort of bolster up those emotions. Okay, the first one is during the big fight in the marketplace. Randomly, people are cheering. And the second one is the scene where he's on the German U-boat. He swims across and all the pirates start cheering for him. It's absolutely hilarious. Yes, they're like, where's Indiana Jones? He's swimming across and gets on the U-boat. And they're like, there he is. The marketplace is also where we get the, the famous scene where the guy pulls out the giant sword and starts swinging it, swinging it around and Indy just shoots him. I'd always heard that Harrison Ford was sick and, you know, just improvise that as kind of a joke. But it, it, it really, I mean, it sounds kind of like a, an urban legend, but it really was kind of improvised because Harrison Ford was really sick. He had dysentery and he confirmed in a Reddit AMA that the scene was supposed to be this big, epic you know, sword versus whip duel, but he was feeling so bad. He just was not up for this big action sequence that would have taken days to film. So he suggested that Indy just shoot the guy and everybody loved it. And uh, no matter how cool that fight scene may have ended up being, and I'm sure it would have been very cool. There's no way it would have ended up being as iconic a movie moment as what we got. Totally. In the market too, another character we see a lot at this point in the movie is uh, the monkey, the little monkey. He's so cute. And you'll never guess who I just found out provided the voice acting, if you can call it that, for, the, for that little uh, fella. Turns out it was the, the monkey's noises, the little chittering noises he makes, were done by prolific voice actor from our childhood, Frank Welker, who did a bunch of stuff. He was Uni in Dungeons and Dragons. He was Iceman. He was Ray in the real Ghostbusters, Megatron. Amazing. I had no idea. I think I really thought those were just natural sounds the monkey was making. I thought it was just a monkey. That's how good Frank Welker is. He is the Daniel Day-Lewis of uh, monkey noises. <laughs> After the U-boat, 
after the guys are cheering for Indy, they arrive on an island where Bellick and the Nazis plan to test out the Ark before delivering it to Hitler. And there's this great moment that, again, just shows this relationship between Bellick and Indy. Bellick, by the way, is such, uh, I would say, an underrated 80s movie bad guy. He's such a great performance by a British actor named Paul Freeman. Did an amazing job. And this scene, Indy gets the drop on the Nazis and he points a bazooka at the Ark and he says, you know, let the girl go or I'm going to blow it up. And Bellick knows him, unfortunately, all too well and calls his bluff. Just blow it up! Blow it back to God. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the Ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Harrison Ford does such a great job. You can see on his face that he knows Bellick's right. He's not going to blow up the Ark. Again, it just, it just shows their relationship so well. Unfortunately for Bellick, when he conducts the ritual to open the Ark, He's killed by God's wrath along with, with everyone else, except for Indian Marion. This scene was pretty terrifying as a kid. The face melting. It's an incredible effect. To pull it off, they made a model of Tote, the Gestapo agent, his head, and then covered it in layers of a gelatin mixture. They had to get the mixture just right. That would so it would give that perfect, you know, juicy face melting effect. And then they hit it with big industrial heaters for like 10 minutes from all sides and then sped it up for the movie. It still looks very cool. And the ghosts in this scene looked really good too. For most of them, they used like little puppets, little wispy kind of puppets that they'd move around underwater and film them in slow motion. But there's one ghost you see very clearly. Uh, she's right up in the camera, this ghostly woman. And she was actually the receptionist at Lucasfilm. <laughs> Somebody went up to her one day and said, boy, you know, you've got a really great ghost face. And she was probably like, uh, thanks. <laughs> Yes. Now, it never seemed weird to me that Indy and Marion were spared because they didn't look at the Ark. The contents of the Ark just seemed like something, you know, that wasn't supposed to be seen. Like they were showing humility before it by not looking at it. Uh, and Indy, you know, knew what not to do just because he was a, I just chalked that up to him being an archaeologist and, and knowing stuff like that. But there were actually a couple of scenes from the movie that specifically ex explain that you're not supposed to look inside or touch the Ark itself. One of the scenes is when Sala and Indy first find the Ark and they're lifting up that, you know, the lid, the big impossibly heavy stone lid that they somehow move. <laughs> and Sala goes to touch it and Indy stops him because, you know, he sees some inscription about it. In hindsight, it's a little strange that, cho that they chose to cut that out, but it still definitely works. Let's talk about music. Next to Star Wars, Indiana Jones is arguably John Williams' most notable work. It's a powerful, triumphant, and inspiring score, and my personal favorite of all his compositions. It's fun and playful at times. 
It is pensive in all the right moments. Williams said the music did not have to be serious for the film and was instead theatrical and excessive. Apparently, he spent a few weeks working on the Indiana Jones theme, more commonly known as the Raiders' March, that plays during the more heroic scenes. And in fact, two separate pieces were played for Spielberg, who ended up wanting to use them both. These pieces went on to become the main theme, and the musical bridge of the Raiders' March. Dun, 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 dun. I can hear it in my head right now. I would argue that this is maybe even more recognizable, or at least easily recognizable, than anything from Star Wars, right? Because in just seven notes, you know exactly what it is. You go up to anybody in the world and go, bah, 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 bah. they know what you're doing. I mean, they don't know why you're coming up to them and doing that in their face. They're probably pretty confused. <laughs> uh, but once they, <laughs> once the, the confusion subsides, they know that that's the music from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the version of the theme music that you just heard a moment ago was from the classic 1992 point-and-click adventure game, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Excellent game. While we're talking about the music, I have to tell a story about an experience from my freshman year at Illinois State University. I was in the theater department there, and as a freshman, you're not allowed to actually audition for plays. You have to you know, put in work behind the scenes. You got to earn your keep and do stage crew first. So I was working crew for this play. I don't remember what it was. Uh, It was about like an adventurer explorer guy. And it it was kind of a silly play. The director, however, was taking it very seriously. (laughs) He wanted the, the guy, the main guy in the show to actually climb up on like the railing of the, the balcony, the mezzanine and kind of climb across. And so they're, they're, kind of rehearsing this, kind of blocking it out. And I'm, you know, working on lights or building something, whatever I was doing. And just sort of absentmindedly to myself, I was inspired to start whistling the music. (laughs) All of a sudden, this director goes, everyone stop, turn on the lights. And all the lights go up and everybody around me just turns and looks at me like, what did you do? Like, and this director looks around and goes who did that Gulp. and i raised my hand and he looks at me and he goes and who might you be and i was very sheepishly i was like uh, i'm scott i'm a freshman <laughs> and he comes up to me and goes well scott the freshman let me tell you something that was brilliant i love it somebody get that music and they, and they he loved it hilarious did, did, did it actually appear then in the final production yes yes they ended up oh, using it. I, love it I did not get any credit for it i was not mentioned in the program the director probably took all the credit but oh well i knew that i had uh, contributed in my own special little way oh my gosh for the romantic theme williams was apparently inspired by older films with an aim for something more emotionally evocative that he felt would contrast well with the film's humor and lighter moments it reminds me so much of leia's theme in star wars and mm. i really i can't keep them straight in my head i have to listen to them back to back then i'm like yes but they're right they're very similar yes before we wrap up i thought it was worth briefly discussing the i think pretty clever point made in big bang theory a few years ago And that was that Indiana Jones really didn't affect the plot of the movie. So after rewatching Raiders, Sheldon asks Amy what she thought. And she points out that she found the movie entertaining except for the large plot hole. Quote, Indiana Jones plays no role in the outcome of the story. If he weren't in the film, it would turn out exactly the same. If he weren't in the movie, the Nazis would still have found the Ark, taken it to the island, opened it up, and all died just like they did. Unquote. 
this is clever. I mean, it really, we had to think about it. I had to read about it, but, but I think ultimately we disagree. Here's why Indy may have led them to Marion. Okay. So he was directly responsible then for finding the Ark. Indy saved Marion. So she'd likely be dead without him. So that's a huge difference. And without Indy, the Nazis would likely still have the Ark, even though it would have killed those people. Eventually they would have recovered it, not the United States. Yeah, it's a cute theory. It's funny, but it's pretty debunkable as, as you just ran through. But even if it were true, I don't think we would care. Indy is still why we love this movie so much. He was one of our biggest heroes growing up. And there is a reason why this character has gone on to be featured in so many more things, more movies, some very good, some very not <laughs> good, and books and video games that allow you to not just relive the movies, but experience new original adventures with Indy. In fact, this movie was so influential that this is the very first movie that ever had a video game officially based on it. Indy is why Raiders is every bit as exciting to watch now as it was over 40 years ago. And he is why we still love this movie so much to this very day. As Marion said, Indiana Jones, I always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. Indiana Jones is the rarest of icons, a man of action, yet a sophisticated scholar, book smart, but at home as a citizen of the world. He's a true swashbuckler in about the most perfect setting one can imagine, an evil empire vying for control of a weapon of biblical proportions. It's hard to imagine anyone else could have brought him to life, however, like Harrison Ford. The synergy between the story, the sets, the actors, something made it inevitable that this would leave an indelible mark on our lives and on our culture for generations to come. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaidArcade.com. McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production.